0: Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment.
1: I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists, and more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. Welcome to Episode 4 of ASD Engage. Today we'll be discussing communication and specifically talking about some of the challenges parents experience with their child's ability to interact with others. Maureen and Heidi will be talking with Ian Roth, a speech-language pathologist, and Dr. Jessica Bryan, a psychologist and clinician-investigator. In addition to working independently in their respective fields, Ian and Jess also collaborate in numerous research projects as they relate to communication in young children with ASD. Here's what they had to say. Uh, so, we're actually going to start with you, Dr. Brian. Could you tell us a bit about what you do at Holland Bloorview?
2: Well, um, I'm a psychologist, as you said, and I I sort of wear two different hats here. So I have a clinical side to my work and I have a research side to my work. Uh, Most of my clinical work involves diagnosis, um, often with young children with autism, but all the way up into teenagers as well. And my research really focuses on very early identification of babies and toddlers who might be at risk for developing concerns, um, who may end up with a diagnosis of autism. Uh, as well as intervention uh, to support those kids as they're learning. Okay. All right. Now,
1: you've been in the world of ASD for quite some time now. So tell us how you got into this.
2: I have been in this field for quite some time. <laughs> thank you for noticing. <laughs> um, honestly, I, when I was a teenager, I had a family friend who um, had an older sister Who had a young child and the the child was sort of around two and was starting to, it was starting to become apparent that he had communication delays and language delays. Um, And that woman actually hired me on as sort of a nanny for this little guy. Um, My first job was to talk to him all the time. and we sort of developed a really strong bond, and I really enjoyed interacting with him. And so I spent several summers living with the family when he was quite young, mm-hmm. and he did end up receiving a diagnosis of ASD. And sort of that, I was sort of intrigued from the beginning, and that really solidified for me the interest in autism. And you've just kept going since then? I have just kept going since then, yes. There's
1: no stopping you. Yeah, no. <laughs> All right. Um, you mentioned that you're involved in research, Dr. Brian, or Jess. And our second guest actually collaborates with you often in some of the research that you do. So Ian, I wonder if you could tell us about your role at Holland Bloorview and the work that you also do within the community.
3: Sure. Um, So uh, currently at Holland Bloorview, I'm working with Jess. Um, So Jess has uh, co-designed the Social ABCs program. And so I'm working in a research project to look at how well parents are able to learn the Social ABCs program Um, which is a a parent-mediated intervention for young kids with uh, autism spectrum disorder or with social communication challenges. So I'm working as a parent coach, helping the parents to learn the strategies and coaching them to use those strategies with their kids.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. And um, we've also heard that you do quite a bit of work within the community. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what that looks like?
3: Sure. So um, I've been working also with a lot of uh, families over the years, who have kids who have autism spectrum disorder. Um, I've done a lot of parent training up until now, working uh, as a, an instructor for the Hannon Centre, teaching the More Than Words program. Um, I also am working with uh, the neonatal follow-up uh, population and helping parents whose kids are developing differently in terms of their social communication skills to to learn some of the, the strategies that might help them to uh, to improve their social communication development
1: hmm Okay. Terrific. Um, and so some of our listeners might not actually know what a speech language pathologist does. So maybe you can help us better understand that.
3: Sure. Uh, the title is a bit long. Um, so uh, we're working with all aspects of communication. So a speech language pathologist is somebody who assesses and treats Anybody with a communication disorder. So that could be somebody who is developing their communication skills differently as in autism spectrum disorder. It could be somebody who has acquired some difficulties with Mm -hmm. um, communication, say after a head injury or um, a brain tumor or something like that. Um, We work with children, we work with adults, and um, the whole idea of speech and language being different is very important, right? So speech has to do with the production of speech and how somebody sounds when they're speaking. Um, Language has to do with the words that are used and how they're used, how well they um, represent what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's social communication, and social communication has to do with a child's interest in or a person's interest in communicating and how much they see those opportunities around them to communicate.
1: Okay right, so I um, kind of want to talk a little bit about the speech language component that you were just talking of. Um, a lot of children come to our, set- our setting with delays in their language um, And we know that children's language can develop so fast within the first three years um, that we often see. So what are some key milestones that that happen in that time that parents might be wanting to look out for?
3: So one of the first ones is just attention to a person, right? So um, in the first few months of of life, we expect babies to start to notice their parents and recognize their parents in a different way. So parents, um, especially mothers who are often holding their babies, will start to notice that as they speak their child starts to look up at them that um, we want to see that babies are starting to notice their parents and to react to them in a unique way in a way that they wouldn't necessarily react to another person's voice mm-hmm. um, so that's a really really early milestone um, we want to hear a lot of babbling early on so that uh, babies are starting to make different sounds and and parents are starting to recognize that there are different sounds and they sometimes have different meanings even different cries in fact mm-hmm. um, and then as as words start to emerge we hope that words are going to emerge somewhere around the first birthday and we expect that, you know, after the first word is heard that we're going to hear other words coming uh, soon thereafter. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of getting words into longer utterances, we usually expect um, kids to be able to put two words together once they have learned to say about 50 to 100 words.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Excellent. Um, So, when there are delays in language, what might some of the causes be?
3: That's a really good question. I mean, there are so many different possibilities to why um, language might be delayed, right? Mm -hmm. So if um, all other aspects of communication are developing as expected, but language is delayed, then we want to look at how well are they understanding what other people are saying? Um, how well are they hearing what other people are saying? So, is there any difficulty with their hearing ability? In which case, they're not understanding. In which case, they're not being able to uh, to use words in the same way. Some kids understand very well, but their expression develops a little a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really does help kids to to communicate better is identifying those opportunities around them to communicate. The same way that. Anybody who's learning a new skill, whether it's learning to play a, a musical instrument or something else, you get better at it the more you practice. Mm-hmm. And so for, for young kids, we want them practicing communication right from day one. Even if that doesn't include words, even if that doesn't include gestures, we want to see that they are engaging in interactions with people, where they're paying attention to people, where they're, they're responding to people, and even getting into a bit of a back and forth. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So over time, we want to to see that that practice is continuing and that practice is leading to more communication, more frequent communication, but also more sophisticated communication.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's quite complex and it also includes having to take into consideration the environment as well that's really quite important. Okay, Absolutely. Um, a lot of people think that communication is just related to speaking, but you've kind of touched on a few other things. What else is involved in communication? What are you thinking about when we say communication?
3: I'm thinking about people mostly, right? Mm-hmm. Communication only happens between people. So um, a child who is practicing their words by themselves, that's great, they're working on their speech, but that speech is not enough to qualify as communication. It's only communication when there is a message being sent from one person to another. Um, so that said, communication happens without words a lot of the time, too. So kids might be looking in a certain way or gesturing in a certain way or moving someone else's body in a certain way. There's lots of ways that young children especially are going to communicate um, even before they they use speech, or even after they've used speech, but sometimes without speech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so communication is is absolutely, it's sending a message that somebody else understands to that person.
1: With or without language. With or without yeah. speech, yeah. yeah. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so that kind of segues nicely into moving back to Dr. Jess, then we've been dealing with thinking about speech, language and communication. And one of our earlier episodes, Dr. Sharon Smile described that social communication is one key part related to an ASD diagnosis. So then is
2: all communication social? That's a really good question. I mean, I think I would argue that all communication is social. I'm looking at Ian to see if he agrees. Um, and I think part of the reason that we sometimes make that distinction and talk specifically about social communication is to really highlight what some of the some of the concerns might be in a child who goes on to, to receive an autism diagnosis. And so, as, as Ian mentioned before, when we think about communication, we do think about two people sharing messages back and forth. When we, when we use the term social communication, we really want to highlight um, that the function or the purpose of that communication is for social, sort of has a social piece to it. So you may think about um, some forms of communication. You, one could argue, although they they involve people, so they're social, they may have sort of um a more functional outcome, meaning like I'm asking someone to do something for me or telling someone to do something for me. Whereas when we think about social communication and why we use that term, is we really want to highlight um, that, that purpose of communication that has a social basis to it. So kind of wanting to connect with people, um, finding ways to interact in in a sort of um, in a way that builds relationships more than sort of just having needs met
0: Mm -hmm. interesting so what what would be some examples of communication that doesn't seem to have a
2: purpose then so again you know i think we we i i would love to hear ian's take on this too but i think when we when we think about sort of um communication challenges let's say in kids who have specific challenges in in those areas we may see kids who have Words and have developed speech, um, and maybe using those words correctly. Their pronunciation may be great. They may in fact be quite sophisticated in terms of the words they use. They may be um, appropriate to the context. So a child may be very good at naming objects, labeling certain um, types of dinosaur. Let's say for example, but but if that child isn't using those words to build a relationship with someone else that's where we might say that you know they're developing their language fairly well but they're having difficulties in that domain of kind of connecting socially with their communication through their communication. Mm -hmm. So then when you are
0: doing an ASD assessment with a child what uh, are some of the specific things that you might be
2: looking for that are either present or absent in that social communication? So you know one of the things to really consider is, is that sort of distinction between words and other forms of communication. So if you really think about words, what we're looking for are children who use words um, in a way that is sort of directed to another person. So that may look like they're either looking at the person that they're sending, talking to, sending the message to, or at least they're orienting their body in the direction of that other person. Um... And, you know, same with other forms of communication. So if an individual is gesturing or pointing, you want those those gestures to be directed to somebody else. So it's sort of like um, really thinking about what what the purpose was for the child in doing that thing. Was it to deliver a message to somebody else or was it just sort of practicing on their own? And some of that practice, as, as Ian mentioned, some of that practice on your own is really important. And certainly early in development, we hear lots of, you know, kids, little babies in their crib who babble and they're practicing with their sounds. And that's wonderful. Um, but really what we're looking for in in the case of sort of concerns around social communication disorders or autism specifically, uh, would be kind of that that disconnect between maybe an ability to have some words, but not to really direct them to somebody else. Okay. And so, uh,
0: I mean, I described social communication as one aspect of ASD. How might social communication tie into other behaviors that we might see in ASD?
2: I think probably one of the, the main links might be between that sort of difficulty communicating and then having some sort of disruptive behavior or behavior that's considered to be disruptive. Um, it, I think it's very important to really understand if a child um, engages in behavior like, let's say, throwing a toy or hitting somebody, what is the purpose for that child of Of using that behavior and sometimes it may be that they don't have another way to to get their needs met or to communicate what what's going on um and then also you know just that frustration of not being able to communicate may lead to sort of some behavior that we would describe as disruptive behavior so we do see this kind of behavior in autism and in many cases it it can be um it can reduce as children get better ways to communicate and find ways to sort of have their needs met in more um, pro-social, let's say, in more pro-social ways.
0: Yeah, and I guess maybe for both for both you, Dr. Jess, and for Ian, we were talking to a family earlier on in the week who was uh, talking about their child's uh, language delays, and initially, like this child went on to to get diagnosed with ASD, um, but initially they were feeling like. You know, their son's language was amazing at home. He was communicating. He was interacting. And then it was only when he went to a different setting, i.e. daycare or school, that his language seemed to fall apart. And all he did was repeat, I think, cement truck. They were talking about cement truck, cement truck. And they'd never seen this before. And so I wonder also about that idea of like adaptability in language. Is that something also that you're like paying attention to or, or something that we should be noticing in young children too?
2: Maybe I'll I'll start and then I I'd, I'd love to hear Ian's take too, but I think um I think one of the things that we see a lot in all kids um, and it may be pronounced in kids with ASD is some sort of variation between the skills that you can exhibit in one context or one setting mm-hmm. versus others, and we do know that when children feel more anxious or more uncomfortable, skills can seem to sort of um, decrease. Right, so it's not as if that child is losing those skills, but as we many of us who experience anxiety in some contexts may experience, you sort of ha- you can sometimes struggle to find the right words or sort of your whatever you're really great at may not you may not be as comfortable or as um, proficient in all different contexts, right? So I think for a lot of um, the kids that we work with, the, inv- the, the different, different environments can really create different levels of stress versus comfort. And then when kids are more comfortable, they're, they're just much more likely to exhibit the skills that they have. And I think particularly for kids who are struggling or maybe sort of um, in the early stages of learning, that those skills are a little bit more, um, variable or even more vulnerable to kind of the differences in the context or even sometimes mood time of day, um, as well as sort of who's in the environment can make a big difference. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Cause I, I think sometimes parents kind of feel like, like I feel a little crazy because I can't <laughs> like, I see this at home, but then other people are seeing something different. Do, do you find that as well too, Ian?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I think, When we see kids who are developing their social communication skills in a typical fashion, the language that they're developing at that time is extremely generative, right? They learn the word for truck and they learn the word for big and they start sometimes say big truck and sometimes they say big dog and sometimes they say big tree and they start to move words that they've learned around. Mm -hmm. Um, At home, um, you know, you're going to see that as completely typical, And for a child whose social communication difficulties, uh, social communication development is happening in a less typical way. Um, Sometimes what we see is that they're not generating language in that same way where they're manipulating words and moving them around, but rather they learn whole phrases at a time and, um, or whole words that go along with what they see at home. And it's very comfortable. It's very repetitive. um, But it, fits right Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem that different until they're taken out of that really familiar environment and put in a different one and they don't have Mm -hmm. those pat phrases or those whole chunks of language to use in that new environment and they look much less proficient even though at home it seemed like everything kind of fit
2: oh interesting Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so ian you had mentioned you kind of touched on earlier um thinking about key milestones and paying attention to other people and uh Dr. Jess, like when we are doing ASC assessments, oftentimes the idea of joint attention comes up specifically, and that's a really crucial building block for social communication. But parents might not really know what that
2: is. So could you explain what joint attention is? So there are a couple of different pieces to joint attention. And one, um, we've talked a little bit here about attention and sort of paying attention to people is a big part of joint attention. And really, when we talk about joint attention, Broadly, we're talking about sharing your, sharing your attention about something with somebody else. So we, you know, we can think about how a child pays attention to things in the world. So do they notice, for example, when a dog walks by or an airplane flies overhead and that, that would just be sort of basic attention. So do they follow and notice things in the world? It becomes joint attention when there's sort of that again, back to this social motivation, when there's that motivation to pull somebody else in to experience that with you. And, you know, there are sort of some very specific things we may look for. But one of the sort of the most common example of that in, in toddler development really would be noticing, you know, you're maybe at the park with your toddler, they notice a dog walk by, they might reach out their hand and point. Or they might say "doggy," or they might say "woof woof," and ultimately, then they would typically turn back to you as their parent, as if to say, "Do you see this cool thing that I see?" So it's really that kind of that social connectedness that many many toddlers really seem to crave so so easily and so early in development um, that that we talk about when we talk about social. Uh, for joint attention, so so bringing in someone's attention to see the thing that you're seeing and enjoying together. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, In our last interview, um, we spoke to a parent who described her daughter as very independent when she was younger, and uh, that was kind of the label she she kind of put on her before the diagnostic process, where her daughter was diagnosed with ASD, and. Um, before she was diagnosed, she she noticed that when her daughter started to walk, she tried to look into her eyes to connect and share that excitement of the moment that her daughter like was just starting to walk. And her daughter didn't, re- didn't reciprocate. And that really stood out to, to mom as like, okay, we're not sharing this experience together. And it brings up the idea of reciprocity something being reciprocal right
2: And how would you talk about reciprocity with parents? First of all, I love that example. I yeah. think it's such a powerful example and we, we hear we hear that kind of observation sometimes from parents um, even sometimes it can be a couple of years later, right And thinking back there was that moment where I would have expected my child to connect with me about this thing, whatever it was. We were having a giggle game. We were playing peekaboo, walking, you know, whatever the example is. And sometimes in hindsight, parents do reflect back that 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 connectedness seemed to be different um, for, a, for a child who goes on to have autism. Sometimes parents don't um, notice it at first, be, particularly if they haven't had other children. So kind of knowing how much a child should, I put quotes around that, oh, sure. should look at you when they're sharing excitement. I mean, there's so much variability across children to begin with that there are no sort of, there are no rules about when the when these things come into play in a very sort of concrete way. Um, but, but oftentimes we'll hear it from a parent who may be um, interacting with a second born child or a later born child who's now eight or nine or 10 months old and doing some of these things that seem almost so natural for them. And in hindsight, those parents say to us, in hindsight, I realized that this little one who, you know, my my older child who has autism really wasn't doing those things in quite the same way as his or her younger sibling is. Um, But I think that that sort of, that reciprocity is really around kind of, um, again, socially connecting with somebody else and kind of wanting to, wanting to pull someone into your world. So we talked a little bit about joint attention, which is sort of pulling someone to share something with you that's maybe off in the distance, but there's also that shared, those shared experiences. So um, again, I I think that example of the, that, that the mom gave about sort of feeling like her toddler should have or or might have wanted to share that experience with her and noticing that it wasn't there is such a really salient example of what we hear from families about just feeling like some some connectedness wasn't quite um what what a parent would have expected often it's very subtle like this right so mm-hmm. i think that the other piece to really keep in mind is that lots of parents don't experience that because it's so subtle um raising a child is exhausting and stressful and takes, you know, so many resources out of all family members that sometimes these subtle things are really easy to miss. And um, families, it's hard for families sometimes to look back and almost, you know, we hear from families who say, I wish I had noticed this earlier. And often it's, it's impossible to have noticed it earlier, right? So these are things that um, can be very subtle and families are juggling so many things that they shouldn't they shouldn't feel like they needed to have caught that earlier. Um, but that's part of what some of our research is trying to identify is, are there some really sort of key developmental things that um, go differently in kids who end up with autism that we can, you know, help future families down the line to be watching out for those things. Um, and, and the main goal of watching out for those things is to start finding ways to enhance a child's development as soon as possible. So uh, we, you know, the, the sooner that we can help families to support and sort of um, foster their child's development, um, we, we do think that we sort of have, we have a better opportunity to make, to help that child make gains if we start. Sooner, But we also know that um, supporting kids' development across their lifespan is really important. So, there, you know, we, we put a lot of stock into early identification and early intervention and early supports. But uh, those supports can be valuable at any time. Really.
0: Yeah, well, and, and it's interesting. So the example of the parent that I described, right, taking first steps is around like first, first you know, birthday and stuff like that. And then, Ian, you were mentioning like being having that attention. So that reciprocity, how early are those signs of reciprocity showing up?
2: I mean, one of the examples that Ian gave early on about sort of language development was about babbling. And we do, we, you know, again, these are subtle things and we don't expect parents to, to necessarily notice them. But we do find that quite early on, as soon as kids start babbling, babies start babbling, they do, they do usually develop what we call reciprocal babbling so kind of babbling in order to pull someone else in socially so yes they're practicing their sounds and they're doing all sorts of um, play with sounds that and some of it is self-directed and it's just kind of learning and mastery for its own benefit which is wonderful and really important but a lot of that very very early babbling so as soon as we start to hear those kind of sounds that children are making on purpose intentionally around that same age, they usually are starting to want to either see a smile from a parent when they make that sound, or if the parent makes a sound back, they'll take another turn. And that very early turn taking does seem to sort of in typical development seems to come into play before the first year and before those first words come, um, you know, in the kind of seven or eight month Range And again, there's so much variability and there's so many reasons that children may not um, hit those milestones when we expect them to. But usually when kids start to play with sounds, they start to use them socially at around the same time.
3: Mm-hmm. And even just that idea of looking to the parent to, you know, as Jess was, uh, Jess's example said, you know, the child is looking at the parent for kind of a smile or a reaction or something like that. It speaks to how the child views the other person the parent or other family member so what is that person to me and when we see social communication at different stages of development often in a a very very early form of social communication it's just to smile and gaze but when kids are developing differently developing their social communication skills differently sometimes they see the parent as just somebody who can get me the stuff that i can't get myself And the role of that other person is defined much more narrowly for a child with social communication difficulties. And so that reciprocity is much harder to achieve because the child may not view the parent as somebody who's got the ability to enhance other situations. They are the stuff getter and that becomes how they define that person. And for a parent, that's really difficult to take right that here we are we're supposed to be smiling at each other and bonding and and you know enjoying this moment together is really important milestone and the child hasn't developed the ability to appreciate that with another person right
0: that's interesting i like that phrase the stuff getter i'm sure a lot of (laughs) parents do feel that way regardless (laughs) of uh, their child's development but we um i guess a couple of things so when we were getting ready for um, this particular episode too, thinking about uh, social communication and language, right? Uh, we were ref- reflecting on something that Dr. Smile had been talking about in an earlier episode about all the checklists that you get and a lot of the checklists around language and stuff like that, where it's just kind of like, is it present or is it not present? Is eye contact there? or words there and stuff like that. But then Dr. Bryant, you're talking about like those like subtleties. Right. And sometimes the subtleties are, are what reveals when there might be difficulties going on.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think, you know, what what I think that captures it, that the subtleties and the kind of nuanced differences tend to be what's more informative often uh, very early in development. Certainly when kids are missing big milestones, that's that's a, you know often a good reason to go and get further assessment or to, to consult with the doctor or daycare staff. Um, and, and many, most parents do see those, right? Those milestones are kind of in everybody's face all the time. I think, you know, the challenge with those milestones is that those concrete ones, um, well, all of, all of child development is kind of, um, really variable from child to child and we know that often it's very stressful to be a parent of a young child particularly the first time around and so those milestones are helpful really helpful for kind of catching the big challenges that need may need support Um, but sometimes they also lead to a bit of stress Mm -hmm. so you know are you and they change over time which i think is really hard for families so it used to be the case that kids should be walking by 12 months. Now it's a little bit stretched out to 16, 18 months. So so it's important that we don't forget that there's variability over time in terms of what children are exposed to and what expectations are um, and variability over children and individuals and what sort of motivates different kids. So back to that example about the little one who was sort of walking and maybe not connecting her gaze. Sometimes, you know, for kids when they're mastering one skill, it's hard to exhibit the other skill as fluently as they might have otherwise. So, you know, I, I would, you know, I would hate for parents to sort of hear this and, and notice that, oh, my child was, you know, looking at me yesterday. And then when they were on the monkey bars, they didn't look at me. And this means there's a big concern. Um, because sometimes when you're trying a new thing, those other things that may be more natural for you kind of get on the back, go on the back burner for a little bit. Um, so those milestones, I think the challenge with those concrete milestones is they don't really help us think about the integration of skills. Um, and oftentimes for diagnosis of autism or ASD, what we're really looking for are the integration of these subtle, more subtle skills as being kind of coming online. And, and so sometimes I think about not necessarily an age at which something should happen, or an example of when something did or didn't happen, but sort of more of an overall picture of most of the time when your children make, when your child makes sounds, does he or she tend to look in your direction, right? So it's not kind of a checklist of does he always look at you or does she always look at you or when she makes, or how many sounds does she make or how frequently or how old was she when she made her first sound. But it's more about that overall sort of global picture of most of the time when your child is saying things do they seem to have a social purpose which which is hard to put in a textbook right (laughs) it's hard to put on a checklist um and and i think that's what those are the kinds of things we're really looking for particularly early in development where the the science might not be as obvious and it's it, so it's
0: not only like hard to put in a checklist, but it's also hard to notice like if you're just seeing the kid really briefly for like a regular checkup too, right? Um, Just to add a question that I have for Ian, um, we see a lot of uh, parents who come in and their children have language delays and we might be querying ASD and then we hear, oh, boys develop language later. What do you say to that or what do you say to
3: parents? Generally that's not the case. Okay. Um. There might be subtle differences uh, between kids. Of course there are subtle differences between kids, but in uh, in generality, like we don't see that boys are, are developing skills later. The milestones are essentially the same for boys versus girls across most communication skills. So yeah, so um, if you're if a parent is concerned about something, they should have it checked out um, regardless of what. gender the child is.
0: I think I feel like you've just dispelled a huge myth right there (laughs) and you were mentioning before you were talking about um, when we're discussing reciprocity and sense of connectedness um, and sometimes parents becoming the the stuff getter. Um, I guess maybe directing it first to you Dr. Jazz when there are difficulties with that reciprocity how can it affect the bond or sense of connectedness between a parent and their child?
2: That's such an important question. I mean, I think that um, if we think about so early in development, so as soon as children, if you think about, you know, Ian was using the example before of a mother nursing her baby. So if we think about sort of even the physical space between when you're nursing, between your baby's face and your face, that's kind of the, exact distance at which babies can start to sort of focus at a particular point in development. So people's faces really are one of the most important early things that babies um, look at and see and use to, to make sense of the world and 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 kind of um, develop those bonds. What we hear from some of the families that we work with um, is that similar, similar to to the mum that you were referring to? Is that that, or, you know, th- thinking about how important it is, let's say, for parents to when they look at their child and smile, to see their child smile back at them. And again, you know, we, we can we can think about it biologically if we want, or or uh, sort of in terms of sort of social development. But even biologically. New mothers are exhausted (laughs) and worn out and looking at your baby increases your oxytocin in your brain, which makes you feel good, Mm -hmm. right? So from a biological point of view, when your baby smiles at you, it's probably really adaptive because you're like, wow, I love this little person (laughs) Um, and you feel better and it gives you the energy that you need to to sort of manage the, the stressors of being a new parent when you look down at your baby and they don't smile at you again it may be so subtle and a parent may not know that my baby is at an age where they should be able to smile back at me but that parent isn't getting that sort of positive feedback from such an early stage in the in development so you know it's very it's it's almost impossible to imagine kind of what those uh, what that sort of cyclical long-term outcome of that is. But if you think about how important it is for a a new parent to receive those smiles and that connectedness from their baby in order to sort of manage all the difficult things about dealing with babies, um, when that balance is set sort of against receiving those positive feelings, I think it just must be extremely difficult to then sort of manage with all the stressors. And if you add to that some of the stressors that um may also be associated with with having a child with ASD, so you're starting to worry that maybe they're not babbling when you, when the checklist told you they should be babbling and you're so you're feeling distressed or stressed out about those things and you're not kind of having those positive feelings um, returned to you in the way that that many parents get. Um, I think it just builds so much added uh, stress and distress for families. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a ama- the, the the parents that we work with continue to amaze me in in terms of how resilient and um, strong they are to keep going and keep loving this these date. You know, a, we all love our babies, right? And and so that's not that's not what surprises me, but sort of to to not be necessarily getting that positive feedback quite so easily and then to still just keep um, keep connected and motivated to work with, with whoever can help them, kind of help their baby to develop those skills. Um,
0: I think, yeah, I mean, you highlight like how important that is, right? And sometimes, like, I mean, it sounds like it could be kind of deflating, kind of defeating for a parent when when they're not having that sense of connectedness in the way that they perhaps expect, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or that they're kind of pulling for in some ways. But it's interesting because again, back to the example of, of the, the toddler walking, right? Mom's description of her, she develops a narrative that's still resilient. My daughter is independent. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then she kind of adapts to then, Okay, this is what I'm getting from my child and this is how we'll build the connectedness this way.
2: Mm -hmm. And I I mean, I think that captures it. I think that that the resilience um, of parents is of all parents really is remarkable (laughs) because babies are really difficult. Um, But, yeah, finding those kind of um, special things that that work And that what we see a lot of is creativity in parents, too. So maybe I can't get the smile the easy way, but I can get it this way. And so many parents have developed these kind of amazing strategies for pulling in that, getting that connectedness and not even really realizing how hard they've been working to get it. But maybe, you know, it's this silly song and dance or this funny little noise I make or this little work that I do that gets my little one to smile and laugh at me Um, and not necessarily even knowing how easy it it might be in other cases and how hard they're working in this case but I think you're right that resilience and that just creativity and and what we see is this amazing match between parents finding the thing or the things that are sort of the magic the magic piece that that helps their child to connect with them. So
1: I kind of want to pick up on what you were saying because we see like a lot of the parents that I've seen that have come in and um who would again the narrative that they use is that well it's just upsetting he doesn't want me to interfere with his play he Mm -hmm. prefers to play on his own like what kind of guidance can you give some of these parents when they don't know how to try and be a part of their child's world and so they do back off and Mm -hmm. and it's really quite heartbreaking to see because they want so badly to be in that world
2: yeah, I mean, I definitely see that. I think the first thing that I, that I do say to parents is, because sometimes, sometimes the strategies that we recommend are around sort of finding way, finding mm-hmm. helping families to try new things and sort of create different ways to, to um, connect. I think that the first thing I would say to families is that if you've been in a pattern where you back off because your child gives you the message that they want you to back off, the first thing is that that you're being a responsive parent. So you're reading your child's cues, and your child's cues were telling you, I want to do this by myself. And so I think sometimes when we work with parents and help them find ways to, to get in, um, they wonder, oh, should I have done this more to begin with? And I think it's a really important message to remind parents that the reason maybe they've been backing off is because they were responding to the child's cues in a way that's really adaptive and 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 lovely and sort of well-informed, right? Um, and with, with kids with ASD, we need to just sort of work around that a little bit. So finding ways, some of the most successful ways really are to be silly and playful and um, to be gentle with kind of how you get involved. Um, We'll often sort of practice with parents little ideas about sort of a child who's let's say, loves playing independently with a set of cars or something. There might be a way that you can just roll one of the cars in a funny way and then sort of pull back again. So kind of making it really clear that you're not there to ruin the game. (laughs) You're not there to sort of... um, change the game too much because we know that sometimes kids with asd really like the game to be exactly the same way every time and and that's part of why it's difficult when other people try to join because other people always change the game right just just by virtue of being there so we help parents sometimes think about ways to to become involved in in tiny small little steps that ideally make the game more fun Mm -hmm. sometimes that won't Feel more fun right away. Sometimes the kids just need a little bit of exposure and practice. Like, oh, it is kind of funny when when daddy does that. It is kind of funny when mommy does that. And sometimes it's just really slow and gentle, kind of Mm
1: -hmm.
2: taking a turn and then pulling away again so that it doesn't feel too overwhelming. Um, But honestly, there are some activities, too, that may not be the best place to start for certain kids, right? So there may be games that are so special... the the certain way that I do it. And that may not be the place to start in terms of trying to get involved. There may be other ways you could, you know, show new things to your child that maybe they haven't seen before that you think might be similar to the game they love, but they won't have that sort of um, intense kind of vested interest in having it happen the same way. Um, So kind of redirecting and sort of trying new things, showing them this is really fun too and ideally um, showing how ad- the involvement of another person kind of increases that fun. Nice,
1: yeah, yeah, and a lot of persistence.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. and it's so hard when the when the persistence is met with what feels like the child giving you the message I don't want you to be part of this, right? Like yeah. that's that's so hard because you're putting in a lot of energy and, mm. and if that's the feeling you get, that's really, that is discouraging. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: yeah Yeah. okay that's great you gave some great tips
2: and I mean it sounds like that also
0: parallels a lot of what you'd be trying to promote in speech and language intervention as as well it's interesting I've had some parents come in and uh for an ASD assessment and they've gone to speech and language and they feel a bit confused because they're like oh the speech and language pathologist was just playing with my kid how is that helping them to learn to communicate
3: yeah, no, I think that's, that's an important um, bit of education that we have to do when we start to work with families to let them know that play is how we help their communication develop, right? So if the whole idea of social communication is recognizing those opportunities to communicate or to interact... That's going to happen mostly through play for a child. A child is playing for most of the time that they're awake, right? So, so if we want them to enjoy other people, to see the value of interacting with other people, it's got to be largely on their terms. And so we want parents or clinicians or teachers or daycare staff or whoever's interacting with that child to do so in a way that, as Jess was saying, shows the child that Fun gets, you know, it beca- things become more fun when another person joins. Somebody else has a really good idea. Somebody else makes a really funny sound. Somebody else is going to make something happen in a way that I had never thought of before. And that, again, is just selling the idea to the child that, oh, yeah, other people are really valuable. And then they become much more sophisticated in their social communication because they see these other people as more than just the stuff getters, right? These other people are there to enhance my otherwise fun activities. They're making them even better. Or if I tend to, and a lot of kids on on the spectrum are going to revert to the same activities day in, day out because that's what started off being fun for them. And they're kind of wired to want to do things in a similar way over and over again and over time it becomes less exciting for them and but they do it because again they sort of crave that sameness even though the excitement has kind of diminished um a parent or another person who comes into that activity and shakes things up in a way that the child hadn't thought of before all of a sudden kind of blows the child's mind and now that child has a reason to pay more attention to that person and sees that person in whether it's a parent or somebody else um in a way that maybe they hadn't appreciated before. And that, again, gets them thinking about interacting for different reasons more often in different situations.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately, parents don't get like a manual on how to be like this fun person who's more than just the stuff getter. So like, how do you help parents be that kind of fun, silly, goofy person?
3: No, I think it starts with what Jess was saying, right? Like. To be fun, to be smiling, to persist, and to really, I think it's really important to notice, A, what is the child doing? What do they, what do they gravitate towards? And then to really dig deep into that, why, right? So a child who loves fire engines, why do they love fire engines? Is it because they're vehicles, in which case all vehicles with wheels should be equal? Is it because they're red? Is it because they've got lights on top? Is it because they make a sound? There's so many different reasons why a child might like the thing that they like. If a parent uh, starts to figure out why they like that thing, they can start to take that component and extrapolate it. Put you know, uh, use it with other activities and again it it shows the child that there are other ideas that might be just as exciting as the thing that I've been doing day in day out but I didn't know it existed before and that again it it gives the child a little bit more awareness of what else is out there and the value of another person who has these independent thoughts who's helping me to enjoy these interactions
0: yeah and doctor just before we came in to record this you were talking also too just about like a parent experimenting right and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't um could you tell us a
2: little bit about the grover story (laughs) (laughs) you knew it was coming um So first I'll talk about experimenting and then maybe I'll tell you about the growers. Sure. (laughs) Um, Fingers crossed. (laughs) No, I I think experimenting is really important. And and I think, you know, what what Ian was talking about in terms of helping parents um, really dig down and identify what features of a toy or activity a child likes are definitely the place to start. The other side of that is then also being a really good observer about the impact that you're having on your child. Mm -hmm. So so that kind of um hypothesis testing let's say so if you have a child who loves fire engines and you wonder is it cuz they're red is it cuz they make noise is it cuz they're vehicles you can sort of test those hypotheses by showing your child all those different things and see what they like but sort of in and in a similar vein with kind of just your own playfulness um sometimes parents will will accidentally happen on something so that that their child loves and so if you're kind of really vigilant and watching your child's facial expressions or kind of their their body movements their eyes you'll know you you can notice when you know when something you do creates that response sort of results in that response from your child so it may be something as silly as you know you may be face to face with your toddler and feeding them and then something happens, the pudding falls off the spoon, or you sneeze, or your chair gives out, like something silly happens, and you may see that that generates a particular response, like a really happy, excited response in your child. And that's the kind of thing that you can continue to do, right? So this got really an excited, an excited response. Um, so, so we do, so, so in some of our intervention, we, we help families to also really um, try new things, experiment. Um, and also be ready for those accidental things that come up that create, that sort of generate a really fun response out of the child and then sort of to to keep those going.
1: That's so concrete to me, though, I think. uh, After you having said that, I have visions now of going home and saying, oh, look, it is the red fire track, but look at all these other red cars. Now I have something that I can actually go, go grab them, introduce it oh no it's not the red but i have some other flashing that i like i feel like i have a strategy now i think that that's, that's really great. helpful yeah that's great mm-hmm. yeah
2: and that is it's like trial and error yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah but a place to start a really good place to start
2: yeah and i think it's really i think it is both those pieces it's that experimenting yeah. and then watching for your yeah. response so so um yeah, trying all the different things that yeah. might be what really gets your child's interest, yeah. watching to see what it is that really sparks that excitement and then kind of building building from those things. Yeah.
1: So now the Grover story? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so now your own experimentation. Uh, so the Grover story. So I think it's just an example maybe of... Um, I've been accused of being an eternal optimist and, and so maybe it's true or maybe sort of... the idea of sort of finding the silver lining in, in things that may not be start seeming optimal. So in, in high school, I was, uh, I was teased by a young man for having a voice that sounded a little bit like Grover. And so I, you know, I suppose that, that could have hurt my feelings, but instead I kind of, uh, used it to my advantage and developed a little bit of a a good Grover voice, which I probably won't do on this podcast. Um, (laughs) but it it actually worked really well in terms of developing that bond that I talked about with that first little boy I worked with, with autism, because he loved, loved, loved reading. And we would read for hours and hours and hours. And we were, we, we really bonded over reading. Um, and then just, I don't know, by accident we came across a Grover book and I was feeling relaxed and comfortable and safe. And I just tried my Grover voice. And it really upped the fun factor for this little guy, and he loved it and honestly like it it, it we already had a bit a bond, but it really kind of solidified that bond and all he ever wanted from me uh, for many years was for me to do my Grover voice and to read this particular book with that particular Grover voice. And then, of course, his, his parents were amazing and bought all the different Grover books they could find. So, you know, I probably did my 10,000 hours of practice of the Grover voice, but it really did. It was a, an example of sort of taking taking um, our relationship to the to to the point where it was super super fun and it was then we were able to use it in all sorts of contexts so when he got really distressed because the swimming pool was closed and he wasn't expecting to be closed and he loved to swim i could sort of help him get out of a real stressed out cycle of distress by bringing in the Grover voice so you know there are there that was just kind of a fluke or a happenstance that i discovered that he loved it um, and it really was something that we were able to build years of, of fun and kind of skill development with. Thank goodness for Grover. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> That's great. Um, for both uh,
0: you, Dr. Jess, and Ian, do you find that there are any like common misperceptions that parents have about their, social, their, their child's social communication?
3: I mean, for me, I hear a lot of social communication is, well, he is social. Right, Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely true. And as Jess said earlier, I think all communication is social. Not all speech is communication, but all communication, meaning all messages sent to another person, are social. Um, But there's kind of a a dimmer switch of social communication skills that can be turned on or off, or not on or off, sorry, up or down, Mm -hmm. depending on um, how well-developed those skills are. Right? And so for me, I think the, the term social communication sounds like this kind of very specific thing that is very abstract. I think it's very hard to, for people to understand. And as soon as they see a child go up to another person, he is social. Therefore, that's not an issue mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. And really what we're talking about is a whole bunch of different skills that need to develop and to be coordinated with one another. And that's a really hard thing to, I think, conceptualize for people who aren't speech pathologists or psychologists.
2: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. What about you, Dr. Jess? I mean, I I think it's similar to to what Ian was talking about, where I think about social motivation. And I think that sort of, if you're thinking about common misperceptions, I think, you know, I still hear from from professionals and from families that a child... um, Maybe be perceived sort of not to have autism spectrum disorder because they're socially motivated. And that sort of almost would, would mean that it can't be autism. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, back to Ian's point that it's, it's not, we see lots of kids with autism who are very socially motivated. So kids who love to come up to other people, or love to engage with other people, um, but who have difficulty knowing sort of how to navigate that social world. So, so I see social motivation as a huge asset for a lot of kids. So if you're socially motivated, that's a really great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but kids with autism can be socially motivated. Yeah. So yeah. the
1: Integration that you were talking about earlier. Yeah,
2: exactly. And, and sort of navigating the social world in a way that's, that's appropriate that changes developmentally in an appropriate way so you know a, a toddler who runs up to other toddlers at the park and hugs them that's okay a 5 year old or a 6 year old who does it it's going to start feeling different right um and and so yeah so so these things are nuanced and and they need to be um These skills need to be integrated and we do think we really need to keep thinking from a developmental perspective what are we sort of what are the the developmental sort of not necessarily milestones but the developmental achievements and sort of the path in development that we typically see um, and 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 how can we help to support kids along that trajectory yeah
0: Yeah, one of the things I often kind of references. sometimes parents come in and they're almost like translators for their kids. So they've kind of like adapted so well to their child's communication skills, right? And they're, the language that they're using. But then um, they kind of translate, oh, this is what he or she wants. And um, so there's not an opportunity for them to see Like, okay, well, this strategy kind of falls apart in this different setting, right?
2: And this is actually an area of of difficulty or an area that we can improve upon. But I think that really also speaks to that that earlier part of this conversation where we talked about how resilient and flexible and creative these parents can be right so oftentimes parents do not realize how much they've been helping because it has come so naturally to them and they've grown in such a natural way with their child's developmental needs that sort of it's it's not even apparent to anyone how much scaffolding or how much support that child is getting and when you pull those supports back particularly in the context of an assessment, let's say yeah. um, <clears throat> it can be really hard for parents the first time they they see that wow, I've really been helping a lot and when I pull away my help, um, these are these are the challenges that my child is having. Yeah I think that's a, a really important way of looking at it.
1: Um, I actually have another question. It's kind of a little bit away from what we're talking about. But for Ian, what advice do you have for families um, with multiple languages that speak multiple languages at home and um, are noticing delays in their child's development of language?
3: That's such a good question. It's a, it's a question that's had many answers over the years. Um, and as more and more research is coming forward, uh, the expectation now is that families use the languages of the home with their children. So if they are speaking multiple languages in the home, a child who's developing communication differently or more slowly than is expected should still continue to speak those multiple languages. That, um, A, just from a cultural point of view, they, those children need those languages for their family for the same reasons that anybody else would. So that's just necessary. But in fact, they're not learning um, multiple languages any more slowly than they're learning a single language. Now, what that means, though, is that a child who, let's say, has a capacity for learning 100 words across two months, let's say. Um, those 100 words might be divided into two languages, and that means that they they might be learning 50 concepts, right? Mm-hmm. So if you learn the word for apple in English and in another language then they've learned apple, which is one concept, but in two words, Mm -hmm. right? So it might happen more slowly, but over time, they're still learning what they need to learn. So it takes a little bit longer, but they ultimately get there. We also know that language is generally learned better the younger the child is. So for families who are wondering, should I use two languages now or wait until they've got English down and then add a second language, they're actually better off doing it now, even though there will be a slight Delay in the number of concepts that they're learning, there the child is more available for that type of learning early on.
1: Okay, great. All right, that's helpful okay. mm-hmm. uh, to both of you. Uh, for parents on the wait list, what are some simple things that they can try at home to promote their child's social communication?
2: Can I start? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think from I think the one that I the one that I like the best is to help parents sort of think about ways to um, get a social routine going. And what I mean by that is sort of a playful, interactive game that um, can develop a little bit of a routine that sort of the child can learn this, this is how this goes most of the time. So... Common examples that we see with little ones might be peekaboo or a certain tickle game or things like that. And the advantage of those is that they can, um, again, it takes some experimentation and some flexibility, like what, what's, what, of, which of these games is going to work best for my child and for me, right? So every parent has different comfort levels with different things. Some parents love to sing. Some parents do not feel comfortable singing, right? So finding something that's a fun match for you and your child that you enjoy doing, that um, you f- you could sustain for some period of time. So lifting kids high in the air is really fun, but some parents <laughs> just, you know, find that extremely tiring, understandably. So kind of finding those routines where you can have some fun with some expectation um, and then kind of thinking about being face-to-face in those activities. So is there, if it's a fun tickle game, can we do it when my child is on lying on the bed on their back or or making sure that we're sort of face-to-face so that we can share those smiles and those, those fun times. And in time sort of as those routines are developed and become kind of expected and the child knows what the next turn is, then you can build in some sort of opportunities for communication. So sometimes it's very, very subtle. Like you're going to have a, I'm going to get you and a little tickle or a funny noise, um, and then sort of as that becomes a routine that the child knows and learns and enjoys, you can pause before the tickle and see whether they show you that they want the next thing to happen. So sometimes how they'll show you is they might look into your face, they might grab your arms, they might just move their body up and down in a way that shows I'm excited and I want the next thing. And that to me is kind of the the a really nice way to start in terms of building social connectedness and also very very early communication yeah
1: that's nice yeah that's good
3: and I'll build on that I think um, being fun is everything for a child and so as parents we have to balance the stuff that we have to do changing diapers getting dressed washing hair brushing teeth with all the stuff that we want to do and for parents who are feeling really taxed that there's so many of these routines that result in resistance or friction or meltdowns Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. It becomes, you know, you have to gird yourself for the next one of these and then you need to recover. And I, I think my advice is to spend some time in that recovery period doing the fun stuff. Don't just be the bad guy. Also do the fun stuff with your kids so that they see you as somebody who can enhance their fun, enhance play, so that they see that people enhance their activities. And that's, that's where social communication uh, really, really blossoms when kids are able to see that their parents, their siblings, their teachers, the people in their lives can, take, can actually make their favorite activities even better
0: some amazing tips to end yeah. on yeah so um this conversation has been great ian and dr jess you've certainly highlighted that uh, social communication is more than words difficulties of these areas are frequently some of the first signs uh, noticed on the journey to an asd diagnosis so thank you ian and dr jess for chatting and helping us to learn appreciate and engage in this episode of asd engage If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca.